Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. For human beings, mortality is a fact of life, and there will come a point at which healthcare has very little to offer in terms of extending that mortality, but a great deal to offer and making the last weeks of our lives more comfortable. Tanisha Bowman spends her time helping people to come to terms with their mortality, but also to come to terms with what it is that they want out of the last weeks. Here to tell us more about her work, to share her experience, is Tanisha Bowman. Nisha, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted that you had the time to spend with us on this podcast. I want to start, as we start with most of our guests, asking you about some of your background. Now, I know you did social work. What drove you into social work? And then why is it that you do the work that you now do? Technically, I am still a social worker. I'm trained as a deaf doula, but I like to say I pay my bills through my palliative social work salary. I was an infant nanny and a preschool teacher for my first jobs. I thought I was going to be super nanny. Like that was my goal. And I had a boyfriend that was like, well, you know, you can't do that for the rest of your life. Right. And I was like, oh, wait, what? Why? So I decided to go to school after having been out of high school for about eight years. I decided I was going to go to school. So I was looking at degrees and I said, well, you know what? I have a lot of childhood trauma because I grew up in an abusive home. So let me become a child welfare social worker and try to make good on that. So I went to community college, took me four years to get my two-year degree, minored in deaf studies with the goal of going to a four-year college for the final two years of my bachelor's degree in social work. So when I did that, my goal was child welfare. Then I I was at a crossroads of, do I go to the deaf college in DC, Gallaudet, because I was, you know, I had minored in in deaf studies, or do I try to apply to this other grad school closer to where my husband, where my fiance grew up in Pittsburgh. So I did both thinking I would go to the school in DC for the deaf. And that is not what happened. I ended up going to, coming to Pittsburgh, getting my grad degree here with the focus on child welfare. Still the point, you know, hadn't changed that. I needed an elective that was for my final semester. I wanted something light because I was getting married and didn't have a lot of time on my hands. And the only one that was really open was something called Death and Dying. It had great reviews. And I said, sure. I actually had been a child, a children's bereavement camp counselor in undergrad. So I had some sort of, I was like, fine, I can do this. What I didn't expect was to it to completely change my life and for me to like have this awakening of what I was really meant to do. And after that class my, and I graduated, I had the opportunity to go to a death and dying fellowship, a three-month intensive fellowship um, here in Pittsburgh on how to do death better. And After that ended, it was like, do I go back to child advocacy, child welfare, or do I try to get into this other thing? I had no idea what I was doing. I, you know, I showed up at this huge academic hospital here in Pittsburgh and said, hi. (laughs) And they were like, we don't have kids. And I said, I don't care. I'm supposed to be here. And somehow I ended up as the ICU social worker. And within a year, I was on the palliative care team. 
And I have beyond just beyond just that, I live and breathe what I do. I live and breathe end of life, serious illness, death, all of that, all of that stuff. And it's been really interesting to toe this line between what I do professionally as a palliative care social worker and where my soul is as a death doula, because palliative care isn't necessarily end of life care. And I didn't really realize that until I was in the midst of it. And recently being in the community setting instead of the acute hospital setting has really driven that home. Because in the acute setting, yes, there are a, there's a lot of death, there's a lot of crises, but in the community setting, we're we're trying to follow people more long term. So what I've noticed is I try to toe this line of I'm very open about the fact that I am trained as a death doula. I'm very open about the fact that people dying well is a passion of mine. But because of the mixed messaging of what palliative care is versus end of life care or hospice care, I have to be very careful about how I talk about what I do. I have had colleagues that have told me my patients don't want what you have to offer because they don't want to, they don't feel like they're dying or they want to continue to fight or they want to continue blah, blah, blah. And that has led me to say, but do you even know what I really do? Because my goal is to, for people to live as well as they can, even if they're dying, just because in the back of my mind, I'm like, this could eventually end them, them dying. Doesn't mean I go around screaming death, death, death at people. Like, I, I don't know what people think that I do, but it's not that. In the setting that I'm working in now, I'm capable of preparing people for the eventuality of death, given the fact that we all die, but that these people have some things going on that may make that come sooner rather than later. So that looks like, do you have advanced care planning? Do you have an advanced directive? Have you talked to your family about that? I can do all of that for anybody. They don't have to be acutely sick or dying tomorrow. And I feel like in this setting, I can reach more people and do more good than if I was just working in just hospice or just working as a death doula. So when I say that being a death doula informs my practice, that's what I mean. At the end of the day, what I want these people to do is get their stuff together. But I want people to be prepared because the lack of communication and openness about dying has led us to have a society where we are not prepared for it. So if I can get you at the beginning of diagnosis, we can start talking about that even if you're not dying tomorrow. I'm very interested in that point because to some extent medicine has got us to believe that we're immortal. Doctors seldom talk to patients about the, the final stages of that person's life unless right. it, is ob it is very obvious to them. So the concept of the person dying, withdrawing treatments doesn't get mentioned early enough in the piece and often it's multidisciplinary teams involved and no one wants to take responsibility for the being the person that withdraws the treatment or talks to the patient about right. the, you know, how long is it going to be before the end. And that means the patient is not prepared for this and they fight bitterly thinking there must be yet another member of this team who has the answer to my problems. 
you have just hit the nail on like one of my biggest struggles in this work. I came into this from the from a very sideways angle. I had no idea what it was like to work in a medical system. I had no idea that my job even existed until I had it. And so I got there with this background and like, let's do death better. And when I realized that these specialists who, you know, get all this glory for doing this great work and, and, and fixing people and all this other stuff could not have a conversation with their patients about maybe this isn't working or how is this affecting your quality of life? I realized very early in my ICU time that I wasn't going to be a long-termer there. I couldn't do it because what I noticed was that you had to fight to get patients the information that they needed to make informed decisions. I don't understand, but I do understand why it is so hard for people to tell their patients or for specialists and doctors to tell their patients what I'm doing isn't working or I don't have anything left to try to fix this for you or I hear you, you really want to get better from this, but I don't think that's going to happen. Instead, what we have is if you just get a little bit stronger, if you do this, this and this, this will happen. Or they call us, us being palliative care in and say, yeah, I don't think this is going to work out. They're not just, they're not really responding to treatment. And I think that they need your help. That's not what we're here for, but that is how we are used. And as someone who was not brought up in this medical system, had never really been hospitalized, didn't have people who had been chronically ill, this was shocking to me. How do you get the glory of being a specialist while skirting the duty of being open and honest with the people that you claim that you care for? Why is it that you need somebody else to deliver this news? You care about these people. It's very obvious. Why is it so hard? Why don't you have the communication skills to tell people what they need to know? And why are you relying on us and expecting us who have no rapport with this patient or their loved ones to do it for you? The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. Why do you think it is? Why do you think that doctors skirt around the issue? Is it the communication <laughs> skills? Or do you think that it is to do with the notion that the clinical trial I've just read that says there's a 0.001% chance of the patient responding I'll go with that because it keeps hope alive. It's all of it. It's the fact that palliative care skills are not prioritized in medical training. People graduate from these programs thinking they can have these conversations and they can't. I've seen it. When you think about how much medical students need to learn and how many different specialties they need to follow and all this other stuff, palliative care is always left behind and it is something that people think that they can do because they don't understand. And palliative care is a relatively baby specialty compared to the other specialties. So I get that. But the other thing is that doctors go into the work that they do to help to fix, to cure. 
And when faced with nothing I have for these people is going to work, they don't know what to do. We know that they don't have training in how to deliver this news. We know that they don't have training in how to manage emotions. And we also know that there is a bit of paternalism that comes with medicine that is reflected in, this is what I think you should do, so do it. And it it doesn't leave space for patient choice and patient values. So sometimes when we are called in, it's these people just aren't towing the line. They need to do this, this, and this, but they don't want to do it. And then our response is, do you know why they don't want to do it? Have you talked to them why about, like, about why they don't want to do it? And it's just, it's either we know what you should do, so you do it. We know what you shouldn't do, so don't do it. Or I can't have this conversation. I wonder if there's one other factor here, Nisha, and that is that doctors are uncomfortable with the idea not just breaking the news, but of accepting the news. So they themselves feel that there's yet more hope. I've just got to keep going with this particular line of treatment, even though it's not working. As you say, if only the urea would improve a little bit, if only those signals on that machine would improve a little bit, everything will start to turn around. I have definitely seen that. I was very lucky to train where I did at a very prestigious teaching type of hospital. And what I noticed is there was some animosity towards palliative care because the impression seems to be either we want to kill their patients or we want to change the plan of care. I don't know where that comes from because what the actuality is, is that we meet the patients and find out what it is they want and are hoping for, and then try to make their treatment plan match that. But in the ICU, I literally watched as residents were being yelled at by their superiors for consulting palliative and not making it clear that this was simply a symptom management consult and not of goals of care. They did not want us to talk about goals. They did not want us to have their patients say, all the stuff that you're offering me, I don't want. And at first, I thought that was the teaching hospital aspect of things, but it's not. It, it, it really is these doctors with the, with the best interests of their patients in mind, and I always keep that in my mind so that I don't get like super bitter, is they want to fix, they want to cure, and they have a really hard time reckoning with the fact that they can't do that as much as people have a hard time reckoning with the fact that they may be mortal. <laughs> I think the other issue is whether it's the language that we use as patients that doesn't help. So if you ask a patient, what do you want? They're going to say, oh, I want that particular intervention or I want that particular medication. What they're actually saying is, I want to be able to walk down the corridor without an aid, which is a different conversation because it's about, it's about activities of daily living. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to drive my car or I want to be able to whatever. And then you have a more realistic conversation because there's no doctor who's going to be able to say, oh, you know, you can't walk down the corridor without an aid because you've got this issue. Let's talk about what you can do to get yourself down the corridor 
which makes you feel that you are achieving your goal. Your goal is to get down the corridor. It isn't to get a treatment that's going to make you 10 years younger. I'm smiling over here because I, I, I love the fact that you get that because that is exactly it. That is why we ask in the beginning when we first meet a patient about what their life is like, what their life was like before they got sick, what they're trying to get back to, because nobody wants to die. What do you want? I want to live. So if you phrase, if you phrase it that way, that is the answer you're going to get. But if you are curious and get to know who the person is at a baseline, this is the this is what they are trying to get back to. They want to and where I am in a rural area, they want to mow their lawn. I don't understand it, but whatever. They want to mow their lawn. They want to get on the lot riding lawnmower. Because we get pulled in so much by physicians and sometimes at the behest of nurses to tell people this isn't going to work. We've we've developed this. What is it that you were actually looking for? Tell me about your day to day. Tell me about what you are missing in your life that you would like to get back. Tell me what your ultimate perfect goal would be. And when you have that baseline, then you can base everything else off of that. You can say, hey, you know, remember how I met you three months ago and you were talking about wanting to get back out on the golf course. How is that going? And they're like, oh, man, I, I, I can't even get out of bed, but just get to the golf course. That that because that's what really matters. Nobody wants to say no to treatment. Nobody wants to say I'm willing to die. But what they what they can tell you is what gives their life meaning. So oftentimes I find when I do family when I do family meetings with my practitioners, it's like, tell me about yourself. Tell me who you are. Tell me who you were. Tell me who you were wanting to be. And then I can base my I can base my advice on that as opposed to coming into it with an ulterior motive of saying, because this is what happens. Our, our colleagues feel there's nothing left. This person has a horrible quality of life. Go convince them that they want hospice. That's not what we do. No. We listen to them. You know, sometimes they do. There, there's a reason for wanting to continue. Sometimes there's a wedding, there's a birthday, there's an anniversary. And sometimes these people are just people who want to go out in a blaze of glory. Right. But when you when we are brought in with an ulterior motive, that makes it hard for us because that's not what we do. So we start from scratch. We find out their values and what their dreams are and what their thoughts are, and then we help them find a treatment plan that matches that. Yes, there are lots of times when we walk away from a meeting going, oh my God, this is not going to work. It's not, it's not our position. It's not our place. These are not our loved ones. For some reason, I have found that palliative care practitioners are much better at saying, I don't agree with it, but it's not my job to care, or it's not my position to say anything. Whereas other folks, for good reasons, especially nursing, for the people who are taking care of, of, of people who are declining, it's really hard to see that happen. And as someone who's really involved in ethics, I see it all the time. It's like, I don't like what they're doing. Come and tell them to stop doing it. I've tried all of these things. We've had all of these meetings. You guys are the communication people. So you can say it better, convince them that of what that that what we're saying is the right thing. But that's not what we do. And we won't do that. 
the Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. If you pick up a patient's medical records, you will see notes about their age, you'll see notes about their renal function, you'll see notes about their aortic stenosis murmur, that they've got an increased liver size. But what you won't see and what you won't hear the patient being asked is, well, tell me about yourself and read in the notes, patient likes to mow their lawn, they like to go out to the shops, they've stopped driving but and they feel that they are being a burden on their grandchild because the grandchild is having to take them to do their shopping. You don't read that and because you don't read that, the goal becomes the renal function or improving their cardiac function or whatever else, all related to the technical side of medicine, not on what that technical side of medicine is actually trying to achieve. Right. And that's so frustrating. I read so much documentation through a social worker's eyes, right? There are things that we say about people that hurt my heart, you know, noncompliance, you know, refusal, all that kind of stuff. But I will say my experience is that the medical complex is often hostile to psychosocial information. I myself have been chastised for not just keeping to the facts, but the facts are what's important. I'm looking at what supports they have. My, my job, so what I tell people is my job is to reduce the amount of trauma they experience through a really traumatic time. I can't fix things, right? I can see what's coming and try to help you adjust to it, but I know the reality of it is you have what you have. You have the resources that you have. But it sucks that you are also up against a medical complex that doesn't see you as a person. They see you as test results. And when you have multiple specialists who are not talking to each other, who don't read each other's documentation, everyone's focused on their own numbers. So you have one specialist saying, I can't fix this. Another person saying, oh, I can, I can do this. And the family goes, oh, they can fix this. But they forget about the thing that can't be fixed. It is hard for a patient to wade through all that information. So that is why people turn to us, which is great, I guess. What we do shouldn't have to be a specialty. The people who are parts of these patients' medical care team should be communicating better, should understand that Staying curious, like I just did a grand rounds for Texas Children's Hospital on staying curious and cultural competency and end of life care, because the decisions that people make are based on culture and based on background. Yes, we know what you think they should do, but there are reasons why people don't necessarily agree. And the reason isn't always that they don't understand, that they aren't hearing you or that they need it explained to them in a different way. And because there's this block and there's this paternalism, like do as I say, people don't see that. And when you are relying on other people's narratives of what this patient is bringing to the table and you read that and don't explore, then it just compounds itself and it makes it worse and worse and worse. And then you end up with people who we meet that say, nobody's listening to us. We come in and they tell us we're not doing the right thing by our loved one. They, they tell us that they're suffering. They're looking at us like we're monsters and we don't know why. 
Or we go in and we're like, what's going on? And are like, oh, well, you know, my daughter's getting married in a month and I'd really like to be there. And so the hospital makes sense for me. Like, it's just like there's this block of finding out why people are making the decisions they're making. And people are just going, I don't like their decision. Come and fix it. And that is so unfair. I wonder whether the reality is that medicine has become increasingly technical. So it's like putting your car up on a ramp. It's not trying to fix a car as it's driving around the streets. You put it up on a ramp. It has to stay quiet, turn the engine off, and work on it as opposed to work with it in order to get to where it needs to go. We do things to people, not with them. I appreciate medical advances, but at the same time, and so many people have written about this, you know, so many great books from doctors' perspectives and patients' perspectives on this, but the reality is, like, I don't want to live to 100 if 100 looks like not a great quality of life, right? Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And these advances that we have often leave people in a position of having to withdraw them. You know, it's great that we can extend life through things like ventilators and, you know, medicines that can only be given in the hospital. But when we do that, we've extended life, but we haven't extended living. And then we are left with patients care teams and partners that are like well what do we do now and nobody wants to die and nobody wants to be responsible for the death of a loved one and if you have all of these technologies of course you're going to want to take advantage of them and I will say on top of that that we play the amount of ethical consults I have seen because a family has taken an option that has been offered to them that nobody wanted to give them but felt compelled to give them is, is it's mind-boggling. You cannot blame a family for wanting to extend someone's life when you are you as a medical professional, someone who's meant to be trusted and believed in, is saying, I have this for them. I guess we could do this. And then have the family say, yes, do this. And then turn to us and say, why are they doing this? Because you offered it and they don't want to lose their loved one. What part of this do you not understand? And it happens all the time. Just because we can offer something doesn't mean it's the best thing for them. And it's easy for us to talk about that when it comes to CPR, because we know what the outcomes of that are. But there are other things like dialysis and chemo and intubation that, yes, in the short term, can extend life, but what is life and what are the ramifications of that? You are not looking past tomorrow because all you're looking at are numbers. And then you pull me in, a social worker, and I'm like, great, now they have to go to a long-term care facility or they're never going to make it home or, you know, whatever. But because the focus is the numbers and the test results and the, the symptoms or the whatever in that moment, we don't look at the whole person. And that's the one thing I love about palliative care is that it's not just about the patient, it's about the people around them, it's about the community around them, it's about the resources that they have. Problem is, we are undervalued, we are under reimbursed, and we are misunderstood as being only valuable at the end of someone's life. So we end up with people who have been through the ringer who have earned the ICU, who have done all this stuff, and they're hearing like, oh, his numbers are going up, or this is getting better, and this is getting better. 
what they aren't hearing is despite all of that, your loved one is still dying. And it's hard to plan when you don't have that information. They say, Nisha, that the best way to win an election is to plan or to promise to open a new hospital. (laughs) And the reason for that is that we, the public, believe that miracles happen in these places. I remember visiting the U.S. some years ago and sitting at a breakfast bar with somebody who had a glass of beer, were drinking a glass of beer, and I was surprised to see this happening. And when started up a conversation, they were saying, oh, you know that hospital over there, the one you've come to visit, it's the number one hospital in the U.S., I was told. They perform miracles in there. Look at me. I've just had a pancreatic transplant and they pulled me from the jaws of death. And I was thinking, you've had a pancreatic transplant and you're drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. Wow. They said, yeah, they can do anything. They can bring you from the brink of death. And that partly is the problem, isn't it? That we believe mm-hmm. that these institutions, big shiny institutions that our politicians in particular put so much store by because they win elections, mean that we never, ever have to think about the fact that the end is in sight. Absolutely. And I had the fortune or misfortune, depending on how you look at it, of being trained at a facility or within a health system that is a huge monolith in my state. It makes a lot of money. It does a lot of amazing things. It pulls people from all over the world. But what we don't talk about and what I learned as an ICU and then palliative care social worker is that what that often, you know, pulling in the sickest of the sick, being the only people that will take certain patients is great on paper and great when it's a success. But what happens when it's not? You've brought these people to you with the premise of I can fix you. You've seen my commercials. You've heard about all the things that I've done. And the interesting thing is about palliative care is that it's not our job to to take away the hope for a miracle. We hope for it too. And we often say that. We're trained to say that. I, I wish that for you too. And we don't want to take away your hope. But what we want to do is, is let's talk about what if that doesn't work. The problem is with colleagues that are determined to make it work, there's friction there. Or for colleagues that look at what they've done and go, oh, yep, that's not going to work. I'm done. And they walk away. Then it's about how do you mend this this patient and their family's relationship with the medical system? Like, how do you build back up that trust? How do you get them where they need to be? And I hate it. I hate to say it. And I hate to feel it. But when patients say they feel like they're a guinea pig or when patients say that they feel like they are just a number or just a test result, we push that, we, we brush that aside. Oh, no, 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 no. But let's be real. It's impact over intent. It's how these people feel. And it's for a reason. At one point, I had a patient who was in her mid-20s texting on her phone, but was on an ECMO machine that was basically keeping her alive. But she wasn't, like, if without that machine, she was going to die. And that machine wasn't going to hold up forever. And eventually, she did pass away. And nobody was prepared for that. Because there was going, there was this machine that was going to keep her alive and get her to where she needed to be. Just because these things exist doesn't mean they always work. And as a palliative care provider, we are in this weird kind of like in-between stage where like 
we see the reality of what's going to happen, but we don't want to take away people's hope. So all we can do is walk, walk the journey with them. And we say that a lot. It's kind of a cliche, but literally it's just like, all right, we're advocate for what you want. We will explain to you why we think this may not go the way you want, but at the end of the day, it's not our decision and we'll work with you. But that puts us in conflict with our colleagues who either think there's nothing more I can do, get them away from here or leave them alone. I want to go full blast. Nisha Bowman, that's an excellent summary of our conversation. You've touched on matters that are at the very heart of healthcare. You've said and acknowledged where and when it works and where it needs to improve. The report card says, could do better. And I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.